Hey gang, it's Jonathan Wallace and you're listening to the R&R Rounds podcast. This episode is the second half of my conversation with Dr. Noor Khatib, where we now move on to discuss an important topic, very central and I would say almost unique to rural medicine. In fact, I might go as far as to say the rural issue of needing to transport a patient off-site for diagnostics or consultation is one of the largest hurdles and adaptations a physician must make when switching practice between an urban setting and a rural setting. And transport for diagnostics is also a topic that is perhaps discussed and taught around the least. Case in point is the ridiculous hoops we rural physicians are sometimes expected to jump through to simply arrange a CT head for a critically injured patient. Some of the experiences my patients and I have had in the past would never be tolerated in a city emergency department. But even just generally speaking, the process for a patient or a physician in a rural ER is very different from that in a regional ER where I can just write an order and a CT magically happens. At a superficial glance, it's easy. Sure, in rural, there's an extra step of booking an ambulance or plane or whatever. Big deal. But when you stop and you really think about this from a patient-centric standpoint, there's a lot more at stake. Now, I haven't done much academic training in transport medicine, but in university, in med school, and in residency, I used to work part-time as a paramedic. And as a rural doc, I've spent several hundred hours in the back of small airplanes and helicopters caring for patients. So when I say that transport is one of the most dangerous interventions a rural patient can be exposed to, I'm speaking from a voice of real-world experience, even if I'm not a nationally recognized expert in the field. Anyway, not wanting to give away too much of the discussion between Noor and I, I just want to touch on one more topic, and that is the issue of what is a rural doc to do in these circumstances. Our patients are just as sick, if not more sick, on average than city emergency patients. In the city ER, CT scans are ordered liberally, but from Fort St. Nowhere, obtaining a CT is going to take several hours plus a transport team. So for many reasons, it's not feasible to send rural ER patients for CT with as low a threshold as city patients. So what can we as rural doctors do instead? My answer is two things. Number one, what we lack in diagnostic hardware, we generally make up in extra time and extra beds. A huge proportion of ER patients in the city, which I used to scan in order to get a definitive diagnosis right away, mainly for disposition planning, I can now, in a rural environment, afford to just admit and watch. Or if they're stable enough and they live close enough and are reliable enough, I can simply recall them in 12 or 24 or 48 hours as an outpatient for a recheck. Believe it or not, that is a privilege that most city ER doctors do not have, but generally would love to. So you have a patient with abdo pain, but they look and act stable and there's nothing in the blood work. Why not just admit them, perhaps with antibiotics, and see what happens overnight? Do you really need a middle-of-the-night ambulance CT combo for every case like that which you see? And the answer, of course, is no. So recall and or admit. That's the first thing a rural doctor can do to compensate for not having easy access to diagnostic imaging. The second thing is not quite as easy, but it's generally even more effective, and that is to fill in your community's gap in diagnostics yourself. What am I talking about? Bottle drives to raise money for a CT scanner? Well, I guess that's one of the options, but what I'm really talking about is taking full advantage of bedside ultrasound. In Canada, I would estimate that rural physicians are on average taking advantage of about 1% of what bedside ultrasound could be doing for their patients. It is an untapped treasure trove of patient care improvements and one that's being far better applied every day in other countries and in various pockets. 
Now, am I saying that bedside ultrasound is the panacea and is going to solve all of our problems with rural diagnostic access? No, of course not. But bedside ultrasound will solve a lot of them. Again, anecdotally speaking, my ordering of CT scans from emergency has dropped about 95% from before my ultrasound fellowship. Think about that. That's 19 out of 20 ambulance or airplane rides that I'm ordering that can be saved for other more concrete problems. Again, ultrasound can't answer all of our diagnostic questions. It is especially limited for intracranial problems as well as non-cardiac thoracic problems. But for the vast majority of everything else we worry about in a rural ER on an urgent basis, and even for some intracranial and mediastinal problems, it can significantly help. So with that huge soapboxy windup, and now keeping in mind the two silver bullets a rural physician could potentially use to their advantage, that is serial reassessment and advanced bedside ultrasound, let's listen to the remainder of my interview with Noor Khatib. You saved them a CT scan and a trip to go get a CT scan. Can you talk to us a little bit about the risks of radiation and what kind of discussion do you have with patients with regards to getting a CT scan or not? Yeah, so Noor, this is kind of one of my areas of interest because I work almost exclusively rural and remote now. And I haven't worked in a place with a CT scanner in the last five years. And yet prior to that, I was ordering probably three CTs a shift. And so in the interim, I have taken a fellowship in ultrasound and I have become very educated in terms of imaging, especially imaging that's available in rural facilities. And this is also in a background of me having done a bunch of transport medicine earlier in my career too. For a while, I was working in Australia for the Royal Flying Doctor Service. So I was actually the guy that would get in the airplane and fly out to Fort St. Nowhere, the Australian version, and pick up a patient and bring them back. And I remember sitting there in the back of the airplane on two-hour flights with these patients thinking, this is crazy, the amount of money that is being spent to transfer this person when they could have just caught a scheduled flight tomorrow because they're not at all unstable. And so the fact is that if you're working in a rural and remote department, the transport medicine aspect to get imaging is actually a fairly significant factor that we should be thinking about. But I'm digressing here. To go back to your original question about radiation, CT radiation is really not very good for you. And the problem is we don't really talk about this in our undergraduate or even postgraduate training. And in fact, it wasn't until I did my ultrasound fellowship that I finally found, was given statistics on CT radiation. And maybe this is something we can throw into the show notes. So I've got a table that breaks down based on age and gender, the number needed to harm, or really what we're talking about is number needed to cancer. The stats are a little bit shocking. So for example, the risk of a CT angiogram of the head for suspected stroke in a 60-year-old male is relatively low risk. There's a cancer risk of 1 in 2,200 cases. So you scan 2,200 of these 60-year-olds with these symptoms, and one of them's going to end up with cancer. So that's not huge. But if you're now scanning a 20-year-old female, that risk factor goes up to 1 in 660. And this is not high risk, but it's not insignificant either. And so for me, it's become more important to really look at what is the indication? What is the value of this CT scanner? Does it justify not only the risk of the radiation, but also the risk of putting this person into an ambulance or into an airplane in the middle of the night in a snowstorm to get them the CT scan? Could this be safely done, deferred until tomorrow morning with blue sky and fair weather? 
Absolutely. I remember overnights in Iqaluit, Nunavut, where I had to juggle three or four priorities and one plane. And in the end, very often you can have a scheduled evacuation versus a medical evacuation, which just means the patient catches a next day trip on a plane. And those are very important considerations to keep in mind when you're working rurally, which I never have to think of when I'm working in a tertiary center here in Toronto. For sure. We just often are not taught about this. And if you don't work in a rural place, you have probably almost no insight into the dangers of this. I remember flying over top of the Australian outback through the middle of a lightning storm, and it was terrifying. We had lightning going off on both sides of the airplane. And, you know, it was a legitimate case. This was a neurosurgical emergency, and this guy needed to be transported. But it was not comfortable, and it was not particularly safe. Aviation is one of the safest things you can do in life. The most dangerous aspect of aviation is medical transfer, because we are typically going in in smaller aircraft into more remote places in inclement conditions, and you get this, what they call, get itis where it's like, this isn't safe, but somebody's life is on the line. And because the transport crew and the transport advisor don't see the patient in advance, we just have to go on the description that's provided by the sending physician. And so really, as the initiating sending physician, you are the one making the decision of how critical is this for this patient, but also determining to what extent the transport crew needs to push and risk things. So it's just something to keep in mind. I think transportation is as significant as this cancer risk. And I got distracted there. I started talking about transport, but back to cancer risk, one in 660 for a 20-year-old female, that's one of the safer examinations. If we're doing a CT pulmonary angiogram to rule out PE, that risk of cancer in a 20-year-old female is one in 300. A CT abdo is about one in 500. And if you add all of these up, as many younger patients get, they're getting multiple CTs, perhaps in the same year, all these risks are additive. And so pretty quickly, you're approaching one in 200 risk of lifetime cancer or one in 100 or one in 50, and it just goes up and up. But the problem with the cancer issue is that as clinicians, we're blinded to this because when a 20-year-old that is scanned in 2022, for whatever reason, is diagnosed with lymphoma or breast cancer in the year 2050 when she's only 48 years old, no one's ever going to think back and attribute the cause of this cancer to the CT scan that she didn't really need when she was 20 years old. So effectively, the risk is invisible to us who are ordering these scans in 2022. So I want to be clear, Noor, I am not anti-CT at all. CT scanners are an amazing breakthrough, and they give us some of the best information we can get in many applications in medicine, but they come at a price in terms of iatrogenic disease. And so my petition, my plea to the listeners is before you order a CT scan, really think about what is the risk-benefit ratio. And again, we'll try and find this chart in this article that lists all of these stats and put them in the show notes for you. You know, these are absolutely incredible points. Very important for us to think about this risk reduction for our patients. And at the same time, very often when I'm making a decision to get a CT scan, I often involve the patient with this. Let's say they're there and they want a CT scan and I don't think they should get one. I quickly go on a website called xrayrisk.com. This has helped me throughout the years quite a bit. So you basically click on what type of scan they're getting. You type in their age. And I believe you also sometimes put their creatinine level if you have it. And then it tells you exactly what this one scan, how much it will increase their cancer risk. 
When you give the patient this in writing showing, okay, this one scan that you're about to get or that you could get will increase your cancer risk by this percentage. Oftentimes that puts things into perspective. That'll help you and the patient both make a decision to get the CT scan or not, or it'll be an opportunity for you to say, you do not need a CT scan for that head injury. Number one, your CT head rule is negative. And number two, getting you a CT scan is not helpful for you. Here are your risks. And that's what I love about this website, x-rayrisk.com. It puts things into perspective in terms of estimated lifetime risk of death from other various sources, such as MVCs, drowning, bicycle accident, and puts things into perspective as to what your radiation risk and cancer risk is compared to other everyday things like seven-hour airline flights. So something to look into when you're discussing things with patients and also for yourself. If you find that, hey, I've ordered a couple of CT scans today, let me just double check what's the increase in cancer risk for the patients I'm ordering. This is a very good website to check out. I've never heard of that before, but I am definitely going to check that out as soon as we're finished here. Sounds like a wonderful resource. As you're saying that, it makes me realize the difference between patients and patient expectations when you move from a rural community to an urban community. Because I remember very clearly people coming into City Emerge tertiary care saying, yeah, you know, you need to CT me because of blah, blah, blah. And often the CT scan is not even valuable to helping make the diagnosis, but they don't know that. They've just read something on Dr. Google. And yet when you move into a rural community and the CT scanner now is like a 90 minute drive away, not even an airplane ride, just a 90 minute drive. I will have patients saying, ah, but do you really need to send me? I don't want to go. It's going to take six hours. You know, can't we just wait and see? And I often have to convince them that no, the fact that you're on some sort of NOAC and have smashed your head and now had a seizure, like you probably should get this CT tonight. <laughs> that is true. Yeah. The tables turn when you're depending on your location. Correct. They certainly do. Jonathan, this was absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us today to discuss this case. Do you have any concluding remarks for your case today? No, I think we covered it nicely, but I really appreciate the rural practitioners out there that are listening to these podcasts trying to improve themselves. Because when you're a GP covering an emergency department, you have such a huge field of topics and knowledge that you need to cover. And I feel like a slacker, you know, I mean, I practice emergency medicine and anesthesia and, you know, this ultrasound fellowship, but what I need to know relative to a GP is a fraction. And so for those of you who are just working one emerge shift a week, covering your local version of Fort St. Nowhere, kudos to you guys. And thank you for picking that up because of course it's an important service that you're offering. And yet it's a very small part of all of the responsibilities you need. So thank you for what you do. Absolutely. Thank you so much for what you do. And thank you, Jonathan, for joining us today and uh, really excited to work with you again. Well, gang, I hope you enjoyed that. I'm excited to announce that Noor has already recorded another case for us on drowning, which will be published in the near future. And before I sign off, I just want to mention the Rural Ultrasound Fellowship has a couple of seats open for our January 1st intake. Now, if you don't know what the Rural Ultrasound Fellowship is, that's okay. It's still a new program. You can go to the website ruralultrasound.ca and read all about it. But basically, it's building on the foundational level of bedside ultrasound, which is currently available here in course format in Canada. So if you've taken an EGLS course or house or Eddy 1 or Eddy 2 and so on, and you're practicing at a basic or intermediate level of point of care ultrasound, but you'd like to develop more comprehensive ultrasound skills, and especially if you want to embellish them in the context of full service general practice, I encourage you to check our fellowship program out.
It's a year-long virtual fellowship where we can teach you from the comfort of your community and your practice. And we can bring you up to the level of comprehensive expert in just 12 months. It's a unique program. There's nothing else like it available in Canada and certainly not available for rural physicians. So if this is of interest, go check out the website. Again, it is ruralultrasound.ca. That's it for now. Catch you on the next one. The R&R Rounds podcast is free open access medical education. This episode was hosted by Dr. Jonathan Wallace. Show notes by Heather Lean. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it. Don't forget to check out the show notes for more clinical pearls. Visit podcast.rnrrounds.ca.